This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. What we are not doing is rehabilitating the state of Syria. This is something that Russia wants and that Russia is unable to deliver financially. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. When the congressionally directed Syria study group released its final report back in September at the United States Institute of Peace, it said, quote, the United States cannot avoid or ignore the conflict in Syria. But the situation in Syria has changed dramatically in the past month. Kurdish towns are already abandoned. Everything is shut. Everyone is gone. U.S. troops had been protecting the Kurds here, but now they're leaving. Russia is taking over. And American allies, the Kurds, are moving into camps. Turkey and Russia now have troops in the northeastern border region and are filling the void left when President Trump ordered the withdrawal of U.S. troops. For five years, the United States worked with Syrian Kurds to drive ISIS from the area. I sat down with Syria Study Group co-chair Dana Stroll and commission member Melissa Dalton to discuss the report's findings and how the current situation impacts the group's recommendations. The Syria Study Group is the first National Security Commission mandated by Congress to have gender parity. Dana and Melissa, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks for being here. I should tell our listeners off the top that Dana is serving as the Shelley and Michael Casson Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and Melissa is a senior fellow here at CSIS and deputy director of the International Security Program, as well as director of the Cooperative Defense Project. Thanks so much for being here once again. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Let's start with the study group's findings before we get to the situation on the ground in Syria that's happening currently. Can you summarize for our audience the general conclusions of the Syria study group and how you reached them? Sure. So Congress directed the Syria study group to do two things. The first was provide an assessment of the military and political state of play with respect to the conflict in Syria. And number two is to make recommendations for U.S. policy going forward. So this report was not retrospective or looking at mistakes that were made in the past, but very much forward looking based on the current state of the conflict. So very briefly, the the headlines of the assessment were uh, the conflict in Syria is not over. ISIS even though it has been defeated in, in terms of the territory that it held, is, is not a defeated organization and remains committed, well-funded, and organized to continue plotting external attacks as well as destabilize the region. Iran has not been deterred from entrenching itself in Syria. Russia has used what was just a, at the beginning, a military intervention on behalf of Bashar al-Assad and his regime in Damascus, and really smartly in some ways, crafted that intervention to expand its influence and challenge the United States across the Middle East. Refugees in all of the neighboring countries of Syria have seriously destabilized those countries as well as strained them economically and in terms of service and security, and that is a growing crisis. So let's see, we got terrorism, we got Russia, we got Iran, and then finally on the political process. So bottom line is when it comes to Assad, what started as a 
peaceful protest against Bashar al-Assad as part of the wave of Arab Spring protests, and he and his regime and security forces brutally put it down. The underlying causes of conflict and instability in Syria are nowhere near addressed. The UN has been trying for years to facilitate a political process to sustainably end this conflict, and it is not really going anywhere. In terms of conclusions, what the Syria Study Group acknowledged up front is that the United States at this point in time, the American people nor Congress likely have the appetite to invest the amount of resources or assistance, money financially, that um, Russia and Iran have invested on on behalf of Bashar al-Assad. But what the, what the Syria study group argued is that we still have compelling leverage on the table that if resourced effectively and with political committed leadership at the highest levels of the U.S. government is still compelling leverage to shape an outcome more protective of U.S. interests than the opposite, which is if the U.S. completely withdrew. So the first major source of leverage that we identified was the one third of Syrian territory that the United States owns via our limited military presence and our local partner, the Syrian Democratic Forces. And that one-third of Syria matters not just for continuing the fight against ISIS, but also because it is political leverage to move forward with addressing the underlying causes of conflict. And we called for three other kinds of leverage that needed to be more smartly resourced and effectively applied. One is continuing the diplomatic and political isolation of Bashar al-Assad, so preventing Russia from rehabilitating him and folding him back into the international community. Two is the sanctions architecture. A lot of that is the maximum pressure campaign of the current administration, but there's all sorts of other sanctions out there. There's also a bill before the U.S. Congress, the Caesar Civilian Protection Act. All of these bills would impose sanctions financial costs not just on Bashar al-Assad, but on the backers of Assad, so Russia Iran and its proxies, and finally, reconstruction assistance. So the United States has been the leader in humanitarian assistance, and we were, up until a certain point, also investing in stabilization assistance in areas liberated from ISIS. What we are not doing is rehabilitating the state of Syria. This is something that Russia wants and that Russia is unable to deliver financially, and neither can Iran. We know that's what Bashar al-Assad wants, and we know that's what Russia wants. So we say that the United States, on its own in terms of its expertise and its resources, combined with the Europeans and combined with the world's international financial institutions, retain compelling leverage by denying that reconstruction aid at this point in time. That's a lot and very compelling conclusions. Your mission was compelling and your conclusions are compelling. But given what's going on now on the ground, the situation has changed just in the month since you released your report. How do you square that circle? So I'm going to turn this one over to <laughs> Melissa, but Melissa? I will say that basically we produced this report that got a lot of attention. And what was so unique about this report is that it is bipartisan. Right. So this was a roadmap that all members of Congress and the executive branch could look to together and move forward. And basically it was taken, thrown in the trash, gasoline poured on it and lit on fire. But over to Melissa. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, you're, you're going to let Melissa take the really tough question. <laughs> Always. Not, n- not at all. Um, well, th- just to, to thank you again, Bev, for, for having us. Um, you know, I think um, at the end of the day, the, the findings of the report still hold in terms of why Syria matters for, for U.S. interests, which Dana has articulated very clearly um, when it comes to counterterrorism, Iran, Russia, the importance of allies and partners in the region 
region. I think I would throw into that those categories as well, um, how Syria um, has unfortunately been on the receiving end of targeted uh, attempts against the civilian population in ways that um, have completely eroded international humanitarian law standards, uh, laws of armed conflict, the indiscriminate shelling of civilian targets, including bakeries, schools, hospitals, um, medical deliveries, um, and impeding humanitarian access in ways that we haven't seen at scale and with so many actors involved, uh, both Russia and Iran backing Assad in these tactics, as well as non-state actors obstructing humanitarian access. So this bodes, I think, unfortunately, quite ill for um, the day-to-day survival of Syrians on the ground and then also has ripple effects um, across other other conflicts um, not going unnoticed by, by other actors. So, you know, in terms of taking stock of um, the last few weeks and, and the impact on our, our recommendations, um, you know, I think the biggest sea change has been, of course, on the U.S. military presence in northeastern Syria following President Trump's early October phone call with President Erdogan um, and the decision to very rapidly remove uh, U.S. forces from their installations in northeast Syria. I think it's also important to note that in the run-up to that decision, the United States and Turkey had been working quite closely on a negotiated security mechanism that the Turks themselves were involved in that involved the removal of uh, the Kurdish element of the uh, SDF or the Syrian Democratic Forces, the, the YPG or the Kurdish protection units um, that in the the eyes of Turkey is viewed as an element of the PKK. And we in our report acknowledge that that is a fact. And both the United States and Turkey view the PKK as a um, as a terrorist organization. Minor details. Um, I was just going to yeah. say, for those who don't know what the PKK is and yes. why it's such a big factor in the situation. Yes. So to unpack that complex complexity. So the PKK or the um, Kurdistan Workers Party uh, has long time been an active terrorist uh, group insurgency in uh, Turkey and in, in the broader region, having a presence in Syria, Iraq, um, and, and other countries in, in the region, um, sponsoring terrorist attacks on uh, Turkish civilian targets, um, such that both Turkey and the United States have branded the, the PKK overall as, as a terrorist organization. If you look at the, the arc of the Syrian conflict in the U.S., uh, initial decision to intervene in Syria to counter ISIS in 2014, there was basically a decision point in terms of we didn't want to uh, insert uh, mass numbers of U.S. forces uh, at the time. There was a decision to work by, with and through local partners. Our choices were essentially to work with um, Arabs in uh, the the Sunni population of Syria that we had been working with uh, really since the start of the Syrian civil war, but that were largely incoherent in terms of their organization, um, in unreliable in terms of their, their capability. Um, and there were some strains of these groups that also had ties to uh, certain extremist organizations. So there was that choice. Or there was the choice to work with uh, this Syrian Kurdish element called the YPG, which did have linkages to the PKK um, that had exhibited uh, the, the types of capabilities that would be necessary to, to counter ISIS. And essentially the proving ground for that relationship between U.S. forces and this Kurdish element was in Kobani in, in the 2015-2014 time period. 
and and from there the relationship was born. So essentially, fast forward to the decision um, to remove U.S. forces uh, quite dramatically at the request of President Erdogan on the heels of working very closely with the Turks to remove the Syrian Kurdish installations on Turkey's border, which Turkey viewed as an existential challenge, and basically, uh, you know, this in the Turkey's threat analysis of a terrorist group building fortifications on its border was the active U.S. then uh, pulling back was seen as a betrayal of our partners on the ground um, after asking them to remove these fortifications um, that has weighed very heavily on um, on the minds of, of our forces um, in, in the aftermath and has exposed uh, that population, not just the Syrian Kurdish element, but also Arabs, minorities in the region that um, have put their lives on the line, not only to counter ISIS, but to build at the subnational level um, a different form of governance and security. Um, in working with the United States and the coalition, we, th- those people are now exposed to the Turkish intervention, um, which is in part relying upon local militias from Syria, um, some of which were actually involved in our prior attempts to build uh, Sunni Arab militias in Syria and have since developed stronger ties to suspected groups um, that are a bit unsavory. And, And I think what we've seen since then are reports of indiscriminate attacks on civilians, kidnapping, uh, murder, um, and, and other potential atrocities uh, that are being tracked by by advocacy groups. Um, so, so there's that. And I think there are real risks now of ISIS being able to take advantage of uh, a potential vacuum and discontent amongst the population. I'll also note that you know, while there's been understandable emphasis on the betrayal of the Syrian Kurds, given our strong relationship there and the advocacy that the Kurdish community has here in the United States, there is growing resentment of the United States overemphasizing the the Kurdish element um, and forgetting about our other partners that I mentioned um, from the Arab community, from minority communities. And that creates inroads uh, for ISIS recruitment or recruitment from other extremists organizations. Um, And then just a final note to to layer on top of that, really this advantages uh, Russia and Assad such that they are trying to negotiate with our former Syrian uh, partners at the local level to provide protections uh, vis-a-vis Turkey, um, given Turkish intervention. And that essentially creates space for Assad to incrementally uh, begin reinforcing his rule into these areas uh, protected by Russian air cover. And we've already heard of reports of Russian forces, Assad forces reentering the area. But what has been interesting uh, in in the weeks that have followed, I think, is um, because it was such a surprise that the president um, decided to make this decision coming out of the call with President Erdogan. As it seems, at least as an outside observer, that he has been advised of all of these risks. Um, And so there seems to be a shift in decision making now to reinsert uh, U.S. forces further to the south, down the middle of Euphrates Valley in an area called Deir Azor, um, where the U.S. does have um, some remaining partnerships with uh, mostly an Arab community in that region. And uh, the the importance of this region um, relates to uh, oil resources. Um, It's an oil-rich region upon which uh, the 
majority of, of Syria depends. There have been some transactional relationships over the years uh, to provide some of the oil back into central Syria, negotiated by, by local actors. But essentially, the U.S. now, it seems, is trying to use this as, as leverage, but it's incredibly tenuous in terms of uh, the, the, the trust and credibility that the United States has in, in trying to use that leverage going forward. So in listening to all of this, for all of the talk about the U.S. completely withdrawing, it can't really wash its hands of Syria. It can't. Um, you know, I, I think Syria will continue to have significant impacts on all of the U.S. interests that Dana laid out. And, you know, I think there's, there's an effort, a last-ditch effort to try to preserve some sort of foothold. The other uh, kind of strategic piece of this is um, to try to put pressure on the Iranian threat networks from, from Iraq into Syria and, and then on into to Lebanon, um, the, the so-called land bridge um, of the area. The U.S. also retains a presence at um, a small garrison called Al-Tanif, which is down on the Jordanian border, which is also part of the defeat ISIS mission, but is also focused on this Iranian dimension. Dana? I completely agree with what Melissa said. And just to take one step back, I think right now there's a lot of talk in Washington about getting out of these forever wars and getting out of the Middle East. And right now the focus is on Syria. But one of the key points that our report tried to impart is that the military investment in Syria is not in the forever war category the way Americans think about what we're doing in Iraq or what we're doing in Afghanistan. In fact, this whole concept of buy with and through with these very capable local fighters, the Syrian Democrats forces, which do have the YPG elements, but have lots of other groups, ethno-sectarian groups involved in it, we had a very light footprint. But what the United States military does provide is this enabling backbone. So medical evacuation, close air support, intelligence collection, all these things are necessary, both in the fight against ISIS and not directly fighting Iran, but just deterring and understanding what the Iranian threat network is. So Get, to get back to the question of can the U.S. wash its hands of involvement of Syria, one of the points we try to make in the report is U.S. involvement is not just military, and it doesn't just have to be military. But Syria is the heart of the Middle East, surrounded by partners and allies of the United States, and it is the country where our two greatest threats converge, the great power competition of, of Russia and the nexus of terrorism, which is ISIS, and we haven't even talked about al-Qaeda, which is also very active in Syria to this day. And there are concerns that ISIS and al-Qaeda will use this, as Melissa said, as an opportunity to rebuild and perhaps, in the case of ISIS, take back territory that had been taken from them and try to reestablish the caliphate. Sure, but they don't even need territory to participate in the kinds of activities that directly threaten the United States. What we know is with even without territory, there's a virtual caliphate. There is financing and funding and ideological connections online. And through all of that, whether ISIS-directed or ISIS-inspired attacks, that is the risk to the United States. The president has said something to the effect of it's okay for others to be power brokers or to be the main actors in this region. Is that really the case? And I'm speaking here of Turkey and Russia primarily. Do they have the same kind of interest in making sure that ISIS and al-Qaeda don't reestablish themselves uh, in this region that the United States has? Or do they have other motivators making them act in the way that they're acting uh, in concert in the region. 
there's two parts to answering this question. One is in terms of their interests and one is in terms of their capacity. Um, so when it comes to, to their interests, I think what we've seen over the arc of the Syrian conflict is neither Turkey nor Russia nor Iran are um, truly invested in or prioritizing countering ISIS or countering al-Qaeda. Um, they see that in allowing the space for these groups to function, that is a useful lightning rod um, to galvanize a reactionary and authoritarian um, push against, against them and to mobilize the population and focus resourcing in that direction. Um, and, and I think you can clearly track in terms of airstrikes and military action over the arc of the Syrian conflict, that the vast majority of all of these actors um, outside of the coalition's efforts have been on other parts of this, you know, broader conception of the Syrian opposition. Um, and then there's a question of, of capacity. Does Russia, you know, given economic constraints at home, political constraints at home, have the resourcing, as Dana was articulating earlier, to invest um, reconstruction? Probably not. They also, uh, to this point, although they would very much like to move in this direction, do not have the international political capital to galvanize the international community to reinvest in, in Syria. You know, and I think just given the relative strength of, of Turkey and Iran, neither of those have the capacity either. And I would just add on that. So I, I agree with Melissa on capacity and capability. But in terms of intentions as well, let's be very clear here. The Russians, Russia and, and Putin, want Bashar al-Assad and his regime to remain intact as it is in Damascus. And Bashar al-Assad is the nexus of all of the barrel bombs, chemical weapons attacks, um, war crimes, torture, detention, forced conscription, medical sieges, rape as a tool of war, etc. That is Bashar al-Assad. As long as Assad is in power and the Russians are backing them, and, and we say in the Syria Study Group report complicit in the commission of war crimes in Syria, Syria will be perpetually unstable. And in that instability, ISIS will thrive. And on Turkey, Turkey is a NATO ally, and I agree, if we're interested in civilian protection or stability, probably better to work with a NATO ally and find areas where we can cooperate rather than Russia and Iran, who have very clearly picked a side, and it is not the side that the United States has picked. We haven't really talked about uh, the recent death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. And he, and where he was located, was four miles from the Turkish border inside Idlib province. So whether or not Turkey knew, that's one question. But if they didn't know, then that also, to me, raises some questions about the ability and capacity of the Turks to actually participate with us in finishing the ISIS fight. And the question to follow up on that is if they did know, what are the implications of a NATO ally having that kind of information that could be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> and it's a question that people, quite frankly, aren't asking in Washington, even yeah. though there's a lot of focus on the U.S.-Turkey relationship, especially from Congress, a lot of questioning about that relationship, especially as it relates to the situation. And again, the Syria study group was very clear that we had to do everything possible in, in Washington and this in, in our government to prevent this Turkish military incursion into northern Syria, not only because of the demographic um, issues and the civilian protection issues, but because we knew that the SDF would focus to protect their families and communities in this area of northern Syria, which means that counterterrorism pressure would be lifted on ISIS. You both have, have mentioned Iran, and Iran has proxies in Syria and militias that it backs in Iraq. 
I can't imagine that they don't want to be an even bigger player as they see Russia and Turkey cooperating in that border space. What are the implications there? Yes. I mean, I think what we've seen over the arc of the conflict is Iran mobilizing um, not only IRGC-backed affiliates, but also recruiting foreign fighters um, throughout the region uh, to support Bashar al-Assad. Um, and although some of those foreign forces have been redeployed, um, those militias do remain. Um, Iran has also been building um, some capabilities uh, to produce munitions and, and missiles uh, in, in Syria that um, the Israelis have been very concerned about um, and have been conducting unilateral airstrikes against to try to degrade over the last few years. Um, and I, I believe that um, we can expect uh, Iran to maintain these these facilities, particularly since Assad is going to have capacity issues for some time. Um, although as he is retaking territory, he is using that as a way to refill the ranks of the Syrian army. There will be capacity issues. But I think the other dimension of this that, that's important to capture is the Iran soft power element in terms of the Husaniyas or you know schools and and mosques that are being established in um, traditionally um, more Sunni um, and also you know Syria historically has not there's always been a religious element to certain communities in Syria but Syrian national identity has largely been um, not necessarily sectarian in its orientation. And I think through the Iranian soft power element, there is this risk of exacerbating sectarian tensions over time and also shifting the the demographic balance um, in a certain direction. But what I think is interesting, you know, next door in places like Iraq and Lebanon that we've seen in the last few days is, is a significant pushback um, at the grassroots level on um, the governance structures that very much includes uh, Iran and its affiliates in both of those countries. So I think, you know, that gives us some hope in terms of some of the countervailing um, grassroots pressures that might be bubbling in the region that have implications for what is happening in Syria. Dana, final word. I would just agree with everything Melissa said about Iran. Note that what the Syria study group attempted to contribute is that we can't just focus on Iranian military boots in Syria, but it's also this Iranian soft power. And Iran is very interested in in meshing itself in Syria. The more that the United States and Israel are focused on what Iran is doing in Syria, we're not looking at Iraq, which borders Iran, which means we're not looking at Iran itself. Um, so it is great for Iran to push the edges of this conflict as far away from its own borders as it can. And again, like through um, real estate purchases, soft power, education, paying off local tribes, etc. This is not just military. It's it's actually a smart power strategy. And the United States is not resourcing itself to counter Iran across all of these domains. I could talk to you guys about this issue forever. Dana, Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Agreed. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.